This passage is in your notes, so you could open up a Bible uh, or just look at it in your notes. It would be good to open up a Bible at some point to Matthew 18, because that's where we'll camp out about 10 minutes from now. I'm going to read for you just one parable, and it's the parable of the lost sheep. It's also called by some the parable of the 99 plus 1, because 99 sheep aren't lost, and then there's one sheep that strays off and is lost. So it goes by a couple different names. I'll read you the version from Matthew. Again, it's in your notes. So Matthew chapter 18, I'll actually start at verse 10, two verses before the parable itself actually begins, because we're going to go back to verse 10 is really a key or a theme verse for this whole chapter. Matthew 18, verse 10, Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 12, we start the parable itself. What do you think? If a man has 100 sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father, who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. We're going to say that parables are a lot, more than a lot. They're all about correspondences or points of comparison. So put that on hold. We'll kind of return to that later in this parable in Matthew chapter 18. So first we've got a question. So on your next page on 3.1, you'll see our question is basically this, what is it that guides these points of comparison? So if parables are all about correspondences or points of comparison, what guides us in that? And maybe I should do a little sidebar here and say, there are often two levels of correspondences. Sometimes the first one is, to use that parable as an example, what does the one sheep stand for? And sometimes Jesus tells us that, and sometimes he doesn't. He actually doesn't here in Matthew 18. And then there's a second level of correspondence or points of comparison. So if Jesus were to tell us the one lost sheep stands for one of us as a believer, or one of us who's not a believer, someone who's lost outside of being right with God. Even if Jesus tells us that, there's a second level, and that is, okay, what does it mean? So let's look at an example outside of parables before we work back into parables uh, and answer that question, what is it that guides our points of comparison? And the example I've picked here is from Psalm 92. It's just one verse, although we'll look at the verses around it pretty soon. And here's the verse, Psalm 92, verse 12, the righteous flourish like a palm tree. So there we're given the formula. Blank equals blank. In this case, palm tree equals righteous. So remember I said sometimes Jesus gives us that formula, tells us both sides of the equal sign. But that doesn't complete our work for us, right? We've got to answer the question, okay, in what ways... 
does a righteous man or woman correspond to a palm tree? So really the point of these seminars we do um, answers that question. Meaning, in short, we don't want to go beyond what the Bible says, in this case, Psalm 92, uh, nor do we want to fall short of what Psalm 92 says. So, I'm going to give you an example of how not to approach uh, an answer to that question. In what ways is a righteous person like a palm tree? Here's what I don't think you should do. Google something like righteous palm tree meaning and then the, the verse reference. Here's what you'll get. I won't read through all of these. I'll read through one or two. So when I Googled that, I got back at least a dozen, perhaps 15 different meanings or applications on what the righteous person, being a palm tree, means. Here are two of them. Here's my first one. Uh, This means a believer can weather ups and downs. And here's a quote from a website. I'm not going to give you all the links to the websites. Uh, You could, you know, do your double quote marks on Google and find out where these are if you want. One website has this. The palm grows slowly but steadily from century to century, uninfluenced by those alternations of the seasons which affect other trees. It, the palm tree, does not rejoice overmuch in winter's copious rain, nor does it droop under the drought and burning sun of summer, neither heavy weights which people place upon its head, nor the importunate urgency of the wind can sway it from perfect uprightness. Sounds great. Somebody's got good vocabulary. They're writing well. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? So, wow. The righteous person can weather the ups and downs of life uh, long term because palm trees do that. Here's one more example. It's my third one in your list. Uh, The righteous person should be giving because a palm tree is a giving tree. Here's the quote. The palm tree is a huge blessing to the people living in desert regions. It is a giving tree. In fact, there is not a single part of it that is not of use. The trunk gives timber. Mid-rib of the leaves are used to make crates and furniture. Leaflets are used to make baskets. Leaf is used as a fuel. Fruit stalks are used to make ropes, fibers for cordage and packing material. The seeds are ground and fed to cattle. Fruits give syrup, vinegar, alcohol, wine, and honey. Last but not least, the fruits form the diet of people living in Arabia and Persia. The palm tree teaches us to be a giving people, giving in every possible way, giving of our time, knowledge, finances, resources, and energy. So is this uh, the way we approach the answer to the question, what do those correspondences mean? In this case, one correspondence, righteous person is a palm tree. I've already told you no. You can tell by maybe the tone of voice of me reading those, uh, those excerpts from the web that I don't think this is the way we do it. It's very subjective. It's reading something into scripture. Okay, so how do we do it then? Well, let's do it together. I'll ask you for a couple thoughts in a minute. Let's look at 92, Psalm 92, and those verses in context. So that's really the answer to our question, what guides our points of comparison? It can be answered in one word. Ryan's already talked a good deal about that word, and the word is context. Here are just two verses. Here's verse 12. The righteous flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. 
So right away, in the verse itself, it's actually a palm tree and a cedar. They're two different trees together. So already we've got some indication. Maybe we shouldn't focus so much on a palm tree. Uh, look it up on Wikipedia and come up with 20 aspects of a palm tree and say, these must all be true as long as they're positive of believers. Verse 13 follows, they are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. So I've put some blanks in your notes for you to write down some notes, but let me ask you to out loud give some thoughts looking at just those two verses and ignoring the eight points that I pulled from the web. Go to that second level. The first level is given to us. A righteous person is like a palm tree. Second level is what does that mean? So defending it from the text, in what way is a righteous person like a palm tree? Yeah, isn't that interesting? Interesting, planted in the house of the Lord. So you've got flourish in verse 12 and growing in verse 12, right? So maybe one of those items in the list of eight that I pulled from the web, maybe one of those is correct. If one of those talked about a righteous person flourishing and growing in good health, it makes us think of the, the tree in Psalm 1, planted by water that bears fruit when it should and it's got good, strong branches. Uh, so maybe one of those in the list of eight is correct. But like Ken said, the interesting thing is we've got planted in the courts of our God in verse 13. There's some relation between cedars and palm trees and the temple that is being brought out in Psalm 92. And that probably is not going to get brought out if we do a web search and just try to, I don't know what the study of trees is called, but use the study of trees to find out the different aspects of what a palm tree is. Verse 14, they still bear fruit in old age. So there is some longevity here. So maybe we'd look at, back at my list of eight and see maybe half of one of those other points is a little bit on track. Look at verse 15, to declare now, who's doing the declaring? Well, it's really back from verses 12 and 13, the palm trees and the cedars. So we have to answer Ken's question, in what way were palm trees or cedars either a part of the temple in terms of building materials or represented in terms of some kind of illustration or drawing? Or maybe it's a third category I'm not aware of. In verse 15, these declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no uprightness in him. So let me throw out a guess, but I haven't researched it. It would take a half hour of studying uh, and looking back at books like Exodus and Deuteronomy to see what relation those trees have with the tabernacle and then later when Solomon built it, the temple itself. So here's what I would just throw out. Maybe we know that cedars were uh, were. Uh, of wide girth, very tall and very strong in Lebanon. So don't think cedars that we have here in New Mexico. You've got to imagine a different kind of cedar. So it could be, and we know they were used as a building material, that the psalmist is saying this, if the cedars in the temple could speak, what they would say is, don't look at me. Uh, and imagine the way I was, you know, before I was cut down. Uh, strong, Thick, immovable, tall, 
straight, uh, my uprightness and my strength, these two ideas we have in the, in the last verse I read from Psalm 92, maybe the cedar would say this, think of my creator and how strong and how upright he is. If, you, if I were to compare myself to my creator, my uprightness and strength compared to him, it would be like comparing a drop of water, one drop, to all the water of all the oceans across the whole earth. That's how great my God is. So don't compliment me. Think of someone else, the creative universe, who is strong and upright. Now, I'd want to study again about a half hour to kind of confirm that, but that's at least one guess as to what that could mean. So when we carry that over to the righteous, maybe we'd say the righteous should be declaring God's strength and his uprightness and not their own, but we'd be pulling that from the text. We wouldn't be looking at things like the sap of the palm tree or what the fruit is used for and subjectively creating characteristics of believers that the author of this psalm had no intention of conveying to us. So part of what we have behind these seminars is a thought that a guy named Charles Simeon came up with. Charles Simeon was a pastor in England in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And don't look now, but at the very first page of your notes, I've given you one or two quotes from him. Uh, there's a thing now called the Simeon Trust, which trains pastors to preach better. You can Google that and find that website. Um, but uh, maybe the best quote that Simeon Trust uses from the guy, Charles Simeon, is this. Make the point of the text the point of your sermon, if you're a preacher. We can further expand that and say the point of the text needs to be the point of our fill-in-the-blank, counseling to someone else, preaching to ourselves, uh, application, the point of our discipleship. We don't go beyond it. We don't come short of it. So this idea of when you're given a metaphor or some figurative language, like righteous person is like a palm tree, um, that we've got to have context, we can't just make up our own list, is nothing new to language. We do it ourselves every day. So a quick example, if I were to say to you, oh, this guy, this politician, or this public speaker, he's Hitler. Now, I'm giving you a metaphor, the guy equals Hitler, fill in the blank with somebody's name. I won't pull a name out of current events. This guy equals Hitler. But there's that second level, right? What do I mean by that? What are the correspondences I have in mind? Is there one or are there two or three? Well, do I mean that the guy's German and wears a mustache? Probably not. Uh, maybe you're guessing as to what my meaning is. Maybe my meaning is, He's anti-Semitic, he hates the Jewish people. The real truth of the matter is, you have no idea without context, do you? Because people use Hitler as a stock kind of benchmark uh, metaphor for evil all the time. I may, in my mind, saying this guy equals Hitler, or this guy's a modern-day Hitler, I may have no thought at all of anti-Semitism. It may be something different, just as evil, that Hitler did. Uh, unrelated to race. So I've, your real question is, Ron, you've got to tell me a little bit more. Why do you hate this guy? Why do you dislike him so much? So I can understand your metaphor that you're dropping by using the, the name Hitler. 
Let's go on to 3.2. How many points of comparison are there? So hopefully we've come to some conclusion that uh, parables, at least illustrated by a simple metaphor, paraphor is like an extended metaphor, going a little further than just saying the righteous is like a palm tree. Uh, hopefully we're agreed that there's a comparison there that we've got to identify and then apply. So how many are there? This is really the starting point, uh, as in how many points of comparison, or the most important key, or at least the starting key to interpreting parables, and that is that we start with their structure. Does that sound familiar from what Ryan talked about? Of course it is. So we'll answer the question briefly, what is the structure of this parable that I'm reading and trying to interpret? And the resource that I would refer to you to is a book by a guy whose last name is Blomberg. I've listed it in the bibliography at the end. It's a very thick book. Uh, you might, if you do buy it, read through the first 150 pages and say, Ron, that was a horrible recommendation. And the reason is that the first half of the book, about the first 170 pages, is a review of scholarship on the parables, and uh, including some real odd views that we would say are highly subjective. So you've got a lot of names, a lot of works, a lot of days, back into the 1800s even, and in all honesty, it's kind of boring. But the second half of the book, and many books on parables are organized this way, the first half, scholarly research, what different people have come up with in terms of interpreting the parables. Second half, let's look at the parables. Second half is worth the price of the book and much more because Blomberg will go through these three-point two-point or one-point parables and explain to you what he means by that. So, Blomberg would say, and I would agree with him, that every parable uh, has basically one point per character that it makes. So if there are two or three characters, Jesus is making two or three points. One might be more important than the others, but parables can have more than one point that is trying to be taught. So, I've given you some of his diagrams here to get you used to how this could look in a chart fashion. Uh, I won't mention one-point parables. A quick example would be the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl. Do you see how that's not really unlike Psalm 92? The righteous person is like a palm tree in a cedar. Just one point. And again, our work is, what does that mean? Does it mean one thing, two or three things? How do we answer that question? Got to look at context. So let's look at three and two-point parables, at least how they look structurally. Uh, on the bottom of that first page of 3.2, you'll see that Blomberg says these often fall into a master. You could substitute another word like king or lord or father or employer. And then, because it's a three-point parable, there are two other characters. Often this is a good subordinate and a wicked subordinate. And they're equal not in holiness or righteousness, but in terms of the amount of space they get given in the story. Or the diagram at the right, Blomberg says there, there are other parables where there's a master, again, substitute some other word for that, and there's a focal subordinate and a peripheral one. So one subordinate that occupies, oh, let's say, eight verses, but then another guy that only gets two verses. Then there are two-point parables. We can look at how those are diagrammed on the next page. Maybe the, one of the famous two-point parables is Luke 18, the tax collector versus the Pharisee. They're both in the temple area. 
They both pray their own prayer. And there's an understood third character, meaning God or Jesus, because it's very clear which one is pleasing God and which one is not. But God is not a character that's mentioned in the parable. So this is a two-point parable. Is it enough to say that the tax collector equals us or should equal us? Well, that's a good start, but we'd go beyond that. And we'd say, we've got to look at the context of that. In what way should we be like the tax collector? Because there could be 15 ways in which we're like a humble tax collector who humbles himself before God. The text is going to give us one or two ways and not 15. Matthew 24 has another two-point parable, a householder and a thief. Luke 18 would have a different way of diagramming that because we've got a judge and a widow, and these are not really on the same playing field in terms of a a level or status. Uh, Clearly, the judge is above the widow in authority. And so Blomberg would say, let's diagram that vertically and not horizontally, but it's still a a two-point parable. Next, 3.23, here's where we'll spend most of our time. We're going to go from structure, which we just talked about, and kind of do the whole deal with one parable. We'll go into context, end up with emphasis, maybe end up with one or two points of application. We'll do all that with Matthew 18, verses 12 through 14. There's another parable in Matthew 18 at the end of the chapter, a much longer one. And if you want homework, that's your assignment. Do what we'll do together, what I'll mostly do for you, with the parable of the 99 plus 1. You do that with the parable that Matthew 18 ends with. So let's diagram our parable of the lost sheep or the 99 plus 1. Clearly, we've got a shepherd. It's a clear three-point parable. We have one lost sheep. Jesus doesn't tell us who that is, so we've got both stages involved here. What's our formula going to be? Lost sheep equals fill in the blank. It's our first step. Second step, what, what does that mean? And then we've got our 99 sheep. So that's our first step. It can be done in maybe five minutes, maybe less. Our first step in a parable is we diagram it. We identify, is it two-point or three-point? They're much more common than one-point parables. So you can see how in a few minutes you could do that. Oh, there are three characters here. So I'm going to assume that there are three things being taught. They might not have equal weight, but three things being taught. And I know that most of them have a father or a lord or a king or an employer at the top, and then two under that in a triangle form. I'll try to diagram that. Again, five minutes, you could be done with that. Real work is still ahead of you. So next step is, before we make any identification, so before we say, even posit a guess, I think the lost sheep equals this. We've got to resist that temptation, pull back, like Ryan said, zoom out, and look at what? Our one word that fits probably 49 out of 50 questions about interpretation, context. So let me try to give you a, uh, a flyby of Matthew 18 at least the first half up to our parable of the 99 plus 1. Matthew 18 is one of five collections, I think Nathan brought that out, uh, meaning collections of sayings or sermons of Jesus in the whole Gospel of Matthew. In fact, we've already seen this morning, the first section in Matthew is 1 through 4, but that's not a section of sayings. 
so what would that mean? The first of these five collections would be Matthew chapters 5, 6, 7, and that is called what? Sermon on the Mount. So we're in the third of five in Matthew 18. I won't go over the other three, I guess. So if Sermon on the Mount is the first, Matthew 18 is the middle one, there are three others. Matthew 18 is called a manual for the church. If you read through Matthew 18, really the whole chapter is about the church. It's not just those few verses about church discipline. The whole thing is about the church. It fits together and it's very intentional. Much of Matthew 18 is about caring for the individual, reminding us that church is corporate and individual, not in the sense of individuals being lone rangers, but us looking after individuals, not just looking out on a Sunday morning at this big choir that sings together and saying, wow, this is great, but looking at individual faces and eyes and asking about their lives and pulling people aside one-on-one. Much of Matthew 18 is about people in the church that have been weakened somehow. And there are two ways in Matthew 18 they've been weakened. One is that, this is early in Matthew 18, someone else has caused them to sin. Let's say it's a wolf coming in among the sheep and, and spreading incorrect doctrine in, in significant doctrinal areas. You know, making sure there are no elders or community group leaders around coming up to someone at, in our church here and then saying, you know what, you guys have got it wrong. This is the real way of looking at the Bible. Or you should add the Gospel of Thomas to your five Gospel accounts, uh, and Jesus really was married or wasn't virgin-born. So one way in which a believer is weakened is by someone else causing that person to sin or tempting that person to sin. Another way uh, that a person is weakened is from their own heart, or it originates with their own heart or mind, uh, in terms of sin or rebellion. And that's the stage that we all know as the church discipline stage. But all of Matthew is about, most of it is about, people that become weak. There are three word pictures in Matthew 18 that describe believers. The first is little ones. The second is sheep. That's our parable we're going to get to. The third is brothers which is the church discipline passage and the comment on forgiveness after that. So think of those three, little ones, sheep, and brothers. Are those strong or weak word pictures? They're really pretty weak, especially the first two. A little one, like a kid, or is a sheep a strong animal or a weak animal? I think we'd all say it's a weak animal. Now, brother, I'd say that's kind of neutral. Is a sibling like a brother or sister a strong or a weak term? That's kind of neither. Just a family member. But overall, we've got weak word pictures given for believers in Matthew 18. Now, quick sidebar here, thinking of the whole New Testament. Are you and I as believers always described in weak or neutral word pictures? Let me be more specific and you hopefully can give a quick answer. Are we ever described as what might be called stronger word pictures, like a soldier or a warrior? The answer is yes. Give me a passage where a Christian is described as a soldier. Could be. 
I'm thinking of the more one where we actually go through pieces of armor. So where is that? Ephesians 6. So sidebar ended. Let's just note that we're not always described in weak terms like a kid or a sheep. But in Matthew 18, uh, we are. Here's what I think the key verse is to the chapter. I think I mentioned this before. It's verse 10 where Jesus says, do not despise one of these little ones. So that could very well mean, and I think it does, don't treat any individual that's in your community of faith in a light or despising manner. In fact, Jesus says earlier in Matthew 18, uh, verses 5 and 6, if you do that, it's like you're treating me in a light or belittling manner. That's how important it is. In fact, he repeats that thought in Matthew 10, uh, which is another one of those five sections of collections of sayings of Jesus. So let's look at the beginning of Matthew 18 just for a few minutes. Uh, verses 1 through 06 talk about little ones. I'm looking at verse 2 right now. Jesus called to him a child. So in verse 2, the child is definitely a literal kid. Is he 3 years old, 5 years old, 7 years old? We don't know. But it's clearly a kid that he's pulling over to himself. The question at the beginning of Matthew 18 is, is Jesus talking about children by age and in a literal sense? And as part of his lesson then, don't allow pedophiles to work in the children's wing of your church. Protect your kids age-wise. Or is he using that child as an illustration and talking about something different? I'll argue for the, the second, the one I just mentioned. Why? Because in verse 3, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's talking to his disciples. So this is about you guys. This is not about the kid I brought up. He's an illustration. This is about you and what you need to be like. Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child. So what is it about? You humbling yourselves. And here's an illustration of that. Verse 5, whoever receives one such child. We've got to pause there. What is the one such child in verse 5? Is it the literal kid at the beginning of verse 2? meaning you've got to receive three-year-olds and five-year-olds and seven-year-olds and not abuse them. We'd all agree that's true, but is that being taught in Matthew 18? Or is the one such child from verse 4 the believer who humbles himself or herself to become like a child? I'd argue for the latter, the one I just mentioned. Why? Because starting at verse 2, or after the midpoint of verse 2, the literal child, Verses 3 and 4 are about believers. So what happens before verse 5 is about believers. What happens immediately after verse 5? Verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. Now maybe the literal kid that's 3 years old or 5 years old or 7 years old believed in Jesus, but the text doesn't tell us that. And Jesus doesn't make any point to say, hey, this kid believes in me, protect him because of his age. So I'm going to say little ones who believe in Jesus are Christians. They're you and me. I think what comes before verse 5 is about Christians. What comes after verse 5 is about Christians. There's a real good parallel to Matthew 10, which we won't look at, in which Jesus says the same thing he says here in verse 6 and in verse 5. I'm going to send disciples out. I'm going to call them little ones. And if you receive them, you receive me. If you reject them, you reject me. So I think there are three reasons for taking 
the one such child in verse 5 as a believer. So then we hit verses 7 through 10, which seem like it's a separate topic, and it isn't. So there are stumbling blocks mentioned in verse 7 that relate directly back to verse 6. Now, the ESV has temptations in verse 7, and in verse 6, the ESV has causes one of these little ones to sin. We've got the same verb in noun, though. So older translations will have in verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, and then stumbling blocks in verse 7. The Greek, uh, we get our English scandal from it. So literally, it's something like, whoever scandalizes one of these little ones, better for a millstone to be hung around his neck. And in verse 7, scandals or scandalizations are going to occur in this world. So there's a very strong link between these two verses. Basically, in verse 7, who is the person that is causing the stumbling block or the scandal? It's the same one from verse 6. It's someone who comes into a church and in a significant way tries to doctrinally or otherwise abuse, not in a physical sense, sense of the mind and the heart, little ones that are there. So we continue in that verse 7 through 9 passage with this idea of if an eye is offending, pluck it out. If a hand, cut it off so the whole body isn't affected. I think in this context, it's the one causing the stumbling block in verse 6. So put that person, man or woman, out of your church. They're not only not a believer, but they're harming the people in the church that we're going to call little ones. One of Jesus' descriptions, especially in Matthew, for believers. Quick sidebar here, in Matthew 5, that same word picture is given. If an eye is offending, you pluck it out. If a hand, cut it off. There, the context is lust. So in Matthew 5, uh, let's do it from the male point of view. If a man is lusting, sinning in his mind, and there are triggers, there are places, there are circumstances, uh, not to be taken literally, cut things out of your life, even if you hold them in high value, to protect your soul versus giving in to those triggers, places, people, circumstances. So Matthew 5, both things by Jesus, a very different meaning because of a different context. Here it doesn't have to do with the thought life of an individual. It has to do with the community life of a church. That brings us to the parable of the lost sheep. So how does context inform correspondence? Matthew 18 is about the church and the community of faith. Let's assume that that continues. Now let's do our correspondences. Start wrapping things up. So the shepherd equals what? A shepherd equals God. I put God slash under shepherds. We don't have, especially in the parable, we get elders a little bit later in the section after this parable, but in the parable, we don't have the words elders or overseers. So there's a sense in which we're all under shepherds. Yes, elders, deacons, then community group leaders, but wouldn't there be a sense in which all of us look after weaker ones in the body, or should? Maybe the only exception would be if you're a baby Christian. So you're the equivalent of my grandson Lucas, who's five months old. Well, maybe we wouldn't say to you, go after and pursue people that are weak and help them out uh, if they're believers and they're being drawn aside. Um, but 
For everyone else, there should be at least one or two people in our lives where we could do that for them, maybe in conjunction with other people like a community group leader and a pastor. But we don't just defer everything and say, Tim Bradley, you're our pastor of counseling. I've come across someone that I think is weakened by bad thoughts. I'm just going to hand them off to you because I can't help in any way, shape, or fashion. The lost sheep in this context is a straying believer, and the 99 sheep are the rest of the church. So here's one more example of where even a saying of Jesus can change meaning when it changes context, and he intends it to have a different meaning. Here in Matthew 18, the lost sheep is a straying believer. I think we make that correspondence because of context. In Luke 15, we won't turn there, but in Luke 15, we've got the same parable. 99 sheep, one sheep that is lost. In Luke 15, completely different context. In Luke 15, if you look at that chapter later today, or sometime this week, the key to that chapter are the first two verses. Jesus, my paraphrase, hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. Verse 2, who gets angry? Scribes and Pharisees, they start grumbling. Those two verses affect all three parables that follow from that, including the prodigal son and his older brother. Each one of those sons gets their identification from those two people groups mentioned in the first two verses. So what about the 99 plus 1 in Luke? Jesus actually tells us what the correspondences are there. He does that first step for us, which he doesn't do in Matthew 18. He actually says the lost sheep is someone who needs to repent. It's a lost person. So when somebody repents and goes from death to life by God's work in his or her life, heaven rejoices. There's rejoicing here in Matthew 18, but it's for a different reason. When somebody strays from the church and they're brought back, uh, there's great rejoicing by the shepherd. So we've finished our correspondences, we've finished our context, we start into emphasis, and we've already started doing that. We look back at that parable and say, where are some emphatic words? And we come across them in verse 13, the joy of the shepherd at the lost sheep coming back. So we would say things, perhaps an application like the church is not like a club or a gym membership or a service organization. It's, wow, it's more like a family, which is actually the next word picture in Matthew 18. If your brother sins, here's what you do for that family member. And if under-shepherds are in some sense all of us, meaning not all of us hold positions in a church, but... Um, authoritative positions, but all of us do some level of shepherding or discipling, then all of us go after weaker brothers or sisters. And again, if we need help, then we go to community group leaders and pastors and say, I've tried talking with this person. I think they're bipolar. I am out of my league completely. Well, then of course you should ask for help and not try to handle it on your own. Matthew 18 is something you can do on your own. Let me give you one suggestion for Matthew 18. You have a different starting point after, it's actually part and parcel with context, but after you identify that structure, and I've actually done it for you on page 20, uh, it's a three-point parable, but not in a triangle. A little bit different, because we don't have a king with two different servants that the king interacts with. We have a king interacting with one servant, that servant interacting with a second servant. 
So we'll put that in a line. Here's your start to context. I think your first job is if you read through a parable and there's a term you're completely unfamiliar with, then you've got to Google that term. Treat the web like, for me, what was 20 years ago, a Bible dictionary on my shelf. I gave the Bible dictionary away, I don't know, 15 years ago because all the info is there you know, at the click of a mouse. So you've got to understand what a talent is. If you read through that, you'd probably guess that it doesn't mean a skill because there are 10,000 talents. Not too many people have 10,000 skills. Uh, so you would guess and be right that a talent does not mean a skill. And then you've got the word denarius, and that for sure you don't know what that is. So your first job and homework after structuring the parable, and I've done that for you, the first step in your long step of context, which could easily be an hour, is what is a talent and what is a denarius. Once you answer that, you can see what the ratio is. And let me give you a quick hint. There's a literal interpretation of a talent, meaning what would that be in today's currency? And there's a figurative interpretation of a talent. So if you only come across the first and not the second, shoot me an email. Uh, I'll explain that second interpretation for you. So that's your work. Try to work through the context of that last parable. Uh, go back and identify who's the king, who's the first servant, who's the second servant. And then what is emphatic and what is being taught. And finally, what do I do with that? In 3.3, I'm not going to go through that, which is why I didn't leave blank or white space. Uh, I fleshed that out. Um, and that answers the question, what is a parable? I figure that could be a little boring. It'd be better just to look at a parable like we've done than talk about what parables are. Uh, I'm making the case, it's not original with me, plenty of authors have made the case, that a parable is not our English interpretation or definition. Uh, our English definition is, to give you the short, try, try to do this one-minute version, our English definition is a parable is a short story with two or three points of comparison. Parable in Greek as well as the Hebrew word for parable, were much broader than that. Uh, linguists would call the Greek and Hebrew word, and the Greek word is, called, is pronounced parabole. We get our word parable directly from it. So Greek parabole and the Hebrew term for parable really means tropic language. A tropic language is figurative language and includes everything, similes, metaphors, including short stories. So if you read through those two pages, what I'm arguing is that when a gospel writer says Jesus spoke in parables, the gospel writer didn't mean he spoke in short stories, like little allegories. They have two or three points of comparison. The gospel writer really meant he spoke using symbols, figurative speech, and metaphors, both short and big. This is how he taught. So I'll close with this. Sometimes we think figurative language is less powerful than clear or direct speech, and I think often the case is the exact opposite. So here's my quick example to close things out. If I tell my kids God is powerful, that's not using figurative language. That's pretty direct, right? God is powerful. I could even say God is omniscient or omnipotent. And of course, I'd have to define that if I'm thinking back to when my kids are five or seven or eight years old. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. They might walk away getting something of God's character. What if instead of saying omnipotent, all-powerful, what if I said this? Kids, God 
took the Israelites through the Red Sea, and let me describe for you how Exodus describes that. The water was like walls on both sides of them. We're not talking about five or six or seven feet. We're talking about water that would have drowned them. Uh, On both sides, it was like walls, and what they walked on was perfectly dry. So if my kids are teenagers, I might say, remember that movie we saw last year, the most recent production of um, the Exodus? It wasn't like that because the water was kind of low. Something happened atmospherically and geologically. And when they walked, there were puddles of water all over the place. No, let me tell you what the Bible says. And my kids walk away from that story thinking, nobody can do that. Technology can't do that. God really is powerful. Stories often convey the God being all-powerful or all-knowing much, much better than direct language in one sentence. And perhaps that's one of the reasons, not the only one, why Jesus used parables. Let me close in prayer, and then we're going to see a 10-minute video to end out our time together. Uh, It's something that I just saw for the first time last week. Ryan and Nathan know about this series, and it's the best thing on Matthew I've ever seen. Really well put together. You may not see all the text come up on the screens, Uh, But if nothing else, it's all the more reason for you to go home and view the same thing where, you know, you're 18 inches from your screen. So pray with me. Father, we ask that you would help us ask the same questions that the disciples asked or should have asked. What did Jesus say just before this parable that sets us up to understand it? What kind of Old Testament background is there? What does that word mean? Father, we thank you and want to conclude this with a prayer of thanksgiving that you have given us so much more than what the disciples had before the cross. You've given us the completed scriptures. You've given us the indwelling of your spirit, your very presence. You've given us the church, people around us to help us with this task of reading and interpreting and applying your words. So we thank you for all of those. May we not take them for granted. May we take what we've learned this morning uh, and enjoy the Gospels and parables even more than ever before. We thank you for the Bible because it communicates who you are and it helps us to get to know you better and to be known by you better. May you help us to better understand your words and your ways and your wisdom by reading and studying and meditating on your word and sharing it with others. We pray for these things for the glory of the name of Jesus in our lives and in the lives of others. Amen.